It is absolutely vital that we talk to vulnerable and marginalized groups and that we do it in a way that builds trust between these different understandings of, of lived experience of life and of, of sustainable development at a broad level. And also I think builds, along with trust and empathy, a sense of understanding of what other people's lived experience is like. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week's episode is part of the Just Transitions Initiative, a partnership of the CSIS Energy Program and the Climate Investment Funds. We're going to take a deep dive into South Africa, where Just Transitions have featured prominently into its national discussion around energy transitions and climate action. With us to lead today's discussion is our guest host, Neha Sharma. Neha is an evaluation and learning specialist with the Climate Investment Funds. She talks with Brenda Martin and Mike Ward, two experts who bring us a wealth of expertise and understanding about South Africa. Brenda has worked as a multi-sector practitioner in South Africa's energy and development sectors for two decades, and she is currently with the University of Cape Town. Mike is a sustainability professional and is currently completing his PhD at Rhodes University, and he works as a senior sustainability specialist with the Climate Investment Funds on Just Transitions. I'll turn it over to Neha now for this great discussion. I am very grateful to be joined here today by Mike Ward and Brenda Martin, who together bring with them years of experience and expertise on energy transition in South Africa. Just Transition is quite widely discussed in South Africa. It's featured prominently in South Africa's national plans, climate change policies and commitments. And several different groups have acknowledged its importance, including government, labor, civil society and businesses. However, people are often not referring to the same things or dimensions, so to say, when they're speaking about just transitions. People bring with its use their own interpretations of what it is, which is determined by the gains and losses that they might suffer in the change or transition process. In today's discussion, we will look at what just transition means in the South Africa context, why it is important, what is being done about it, and what is not being done but should be. So to get us started, I wanted to ask you, Brenda, as someone who has worked for decades on a range of development issues in South Africa that span education, gender, political economy, and energy, what does just transition mean to you? What are you implying when you speak about just transitions? The word justice in our context is, I think, quite tightly linked to issues of equality, of equity, and of redress. It takes into account the fact that these uh, different dimensions of transition are interrelated, society, environment, and the economy. But I think that given our history and given especially um, the extent to which energy has been the cornerstone of our economy, if we are going to be transitioning our energy sector, there's no way that that work can sidestep addressing inequality. Mike, I wanted to ask you the same question. As a sustainable development profession who's worked for decades at the intersection of green economy, sustainable finance, water and skills development, what does just transition mean to you? Yeah, thanks. I think it is we grapple with this notion of, of sustainable development. One of the things that we really can't do is deal with environment, society and economy as separate things. I think it is we try to address societal challenges that, uh, that Brenda's mentioned poverty, unemployment, and equality. We have to do this within an increasingly pressured and fragile environment. So I think that uh, the economy needs to ensure the allocation of social and environmental goods in ways that are both safe and just. 
I think we really need to move beyond this approach that suggests that we have a choice between economic development and environmental health. We really have to do both, or we land up with a very real possibility of, of having neither. It's probably captured most succinctly in the notion of there are no jobs on a dead planet. Uh, and I think that since the early, well, late 1990s, when Just Transitions first emerged uh, in America, it's been the big focus is to address this false economy and to really start to look at uh, how we create decent jobs for all social inclusion uh, and eradicate poverty, uh, which are, are three big challenges that we face both in South Africa and globally. So I think that it, it picks up on the two key dimensions of, of just transition. The one is around the distributional aspect, who gets what, and the other around the procedural aspects, the concern of, of who gets to decide uh, in these processes. So that, for me, is a, is a really big interest around just transitions. Thank you, Mike. And, and thank you, Brenda. Some really interesting things you've said there. And as I'm listening to this, I'm already realizing there are probably as many definitions of just transitions as there are people speaking about it. And yet there are overlapping considerations and concepts, like you're saying, the interconnectedness between the economy, environment and communities. I um, mean, really a strong consideration of losers and winners in the change process. Who gets what and who gets to decide? And of course, when we're speaking about just transitions in South Africa, we're speaking about a process or a transition away from coal towards greener and cleaner options. So I wanted to speak about coal. And let me start with you now, Mike, and ask you, what is the role of coal in South Africa in terms of its impact on the economy and on communities? Why is coal so important to South Africa? Yeah, I think that, that coal has played such a critical part of, of our development for the past 150 years. It still provides 90% of our electricity, 74% of our total primary energy. It has been core, I think, to building the second largest economy on the African continent, really contributed to significant regional uh, economic development. It has been an important positive contributor to where South Africa sits at the moment. It's also been at the heart of what is often referred to as the mineral energy complex, the relationship between mining and coal energy in the country. It's been built around a form of development that exploits both people and planet. So I think that you know, South Africa is the 15th highest emitter of CO2 in the world. We face significant resource constraints around, for example, water, where it's predicted we'll have a 17% deficit of uh, supply to, to demand by 2030. And all of this will be exacerbated by, by climate change. So, you know, in the most unequal country in the world, with one of the highest levels of, of unemployment, over 30% going into COVID, probably closer to 40% coming out of it, persistent poverty, we really need to address the environmental and social challenges. Uh, and this will require a very rapid but just transition away from coal. And Brenda, would you agree with the facts that Mike is highlighting um, as the most important aspects of coal on the South African economy and communities, both on the positive and negative side? Are there other impacts at this intersection of environment, economy and community that are important to understand truly the complexities of this transition away from coal? Yes, I think that it's important to balance the perspective. Uh, it's very easy to look back and only note what has gone wrong or what could have been done better. But in this case, it's important to bear in mind that um, South Africa has a significant minerals wealth. And of course, that is seen as a, an endowment, a gift from the planet for uh, many in this country and a recognition that uh, minerals wealth has been extracted 
for many different reasons over time and, and across the globe. So there's a very strong sense among some members of society that there is an obligation and a duty to extract that wealth and to hold on to it um, and to utilize it for the good of the economy and so on. Of course, where one um, would dispute some of those views would be around where wealth has been distributed and how some of those benefits have resulted in very severe consequences and costs. And the, I think, most negative aspect that I, certainly from my perspective, is has been around the exploitation of labor, cheap labor, in order to arrive at that outcome of cheap power. But other benefits include things like the massive rail infrastructure that has been built around the, the movement of coal from one end of the country to the other, um, the ports infrastructure, the, the fact that we have a significant share of exports of, of good quality coal. And then some more recent benefits that have been realized in terms of on the social and economic front, more around ownership of coal interests and so on. Of course, all of that comes at a cost always because of the extractive um, nature of the complete um, value chain of, of coal supply. And I think that those are the places I would really interrogate on a balance. Have we achieved a net benefit or a net effect that is so detrimental that uh, is worth thinking about. Net benefit or net loss. Mike, do you have a response to that? No, I think that it is important, the notion of a, a balanced view. So there's no doubt that coal provides and fossil fuels provide enormous benefits and have provided benefits to the development of many countries. And as we try and grapple with global climate change, we need to be very careful not to stop some countries from developing resources, or we need to work with those countries to develop alternatives in terms of providing access to energy, developing economies. And it's too easy, I think, to just say we need to stop coal. It's, it's not really an option. We need to stop it in a just way that takes into account the differentiated responsibilities across countries and societies. Thank you, Mike. It's just such an important point that you're raising that we know a lot of countries in the global south are concerned by, and it's really critical to their development. And two things that you've both said really stood out to me. I mean, the expressions like gift to the environment and there are no jobs on a dead planet really put the people environment nexus at the center of this, um, how dependent we are on the environment. It was really enlightening to hear your points of view on the importance of coal. Given this central role that coal has played and the historic stronghold of coal in South Africa, we also know that there's a change process that's happening. And Mike, could you speak a little bit about the transition part in the just transition phase? What are the key trends that are driving this transition away from coal? Yeah, so I think that there are, there are both market and policy drivers at the moment in this transition. And it's not only away from coal. Coal is obviously a big focus in the, in the work, but it's really towards a, a low carbon resource uh, efficient economy. So, you know, other fossil fuels will, will start to come on. But in South Africa, because of our huge reliance on, on coal, the focus of the discussion is really there. But I think over the last two decades, we've seen the real cost of coal to Eskom, the state power utility. The cost of, of coal to Eskom has increased by 300%, uh, and that's a real increase in cost. Alongside a kind of increasing cost of producing electricity, there's been a, a significant decline in the cost of alternative sources of energy, including renewables in, in the country. So we've seen the, the cost of, of coal-powered electricity, thermal coal going up and renewables coming down. That is a big part of the consideration at the moment. 
Alongside that, we've seen very significant what we call load shedding or rotational power cuts, which has started to raise questions around the reliability of, of coal supply, which is a bit of an anomaly, really, considering that in many instances, one of the critiques of renewable energy is its lack of reliability. And yet here we, we're starting to see big users of coal-fired power looking for alternatives. There's the increasing environmental pressure, both regards to climate change and severe health impacts related to air pollution in South Africa. And all of this is leading to an increase or a, a difficulty of accessing finance for thermal coal development. You know, with all of those pressures, and I think that perhaps one of the, the biggest pressures really is that it's becoming increasingly unviable to keep the old power plants going many of which are over 50 years old, uh, and we've, we plan as a country to remove 10 gigawatts of coal-fired power stations uh, from the grid by 2030. So, you know, this plan decommissioning is going to have a big impact on jobs and communities, and it's part of, of what we need to plan for. I heard several things there, increases in costs, availability of cheaper alternatives, issues with reliability, environmental concerns, the access to finance and pressures related to that. As I was saying in the beginning, there does seem to be an open recognition in South Africa that a transition is occurring um, due to the many pressures that you just stated. Brenda, would you agree that this trend of uh, reducing demand for coal is widely accepted? What does this mean to the different groups involved? That's a very good question because it depends on who you ask. Um, There's so many different interests vested old and long-standing vested interests and they are they are newer interests and or you, when you look at um, some of the actors within the coal space right now you've got quite a large number of young black ownership that is obvious when you when you look in that space and this is not as obvious when you look into the renewable space or you look into gas and other areas of supply so these are some of the debates that go on in our public space and and they've got to do with how people interpret costs for instance do you take into account externalities in your cost or do you think only in terms of overnight cost is it about tariffs? Is it about blended cost? Is it about what you have invested in our coal supply over time and now taking into account newer renewables, which are still on a learning curve in terms of the learning effects that, that kick in uh, around price? So many different views on the specifics and definitions. Then there are lived experiences. And, and this is where you really get to see a two-tiered worlds of experience. So there are people who are needing electricity, they're needing safe electricity, and they're needing to um, have convenience or availability of supply. And they're not really concerned with where that power comes from. They might be more concerned about what is going on in their town, in their home, and so on. And issues of inequality and poverty and unemployment are much more immediate than these kinds of transition consideration is much more long-term and, and often requires one to have a sense that you're part of a future. So if you don't even feel that you have a future, why would you even think about um, some of these effects over time? So there is a very important need to think about who is being asked this kind of question and then to consider what fundamental, Mike, I'm sure that we have got a sense of the way in which trust plays into all of this. There's a real breakdown 
of social trust within the country. And there's a, a need for so much to be rebuilt in that area around public accountability, around private accountability, and around how there are consequences for different choices that are made that are not often in the public interest. You will find very different answers depending on who you ask. But I think there's a growing recognition of the damage that is done, particularly directly in local pollution, in water pollution. When I say local pollution, I mean air pollution, of course. And then the kinds of social uh, plans that are not actually fulfilled by mining companies when extraction is complete. I think those experiences are felt very directly, especially in rural communities where we have mobile minerals wealth. But I don't know that it is a common recognition of the fact that a move towards renewables is the answer. I think the answer is more likely to be an accountable government, a government that can be trusted and that takes into account common good. Brenda, you've just you've raised such an important issue, trust. It's so difficult to even talk about it. It's difficult to understand it. It's difficult to measure it. And this idea of what this transition means or what justice means and what just transition means really depends on who is asked and what level of trust they have. Trust on the government, but just trust on having a future. And that is such an important insight. And it's just not discussed as often as it should be in the conversations about just transition. I wanted to ask Mike, what is your point of view on this issue of trust in South Africa? Yeah, thanks. And I think it brings this point around, you know, it's uh, it's people's lived experiences that, that we need to bring into these discussions. We, we each have such different lived experiences. A big part of the, the critique of much of the environmental movement, both in South Africa and around the world, has been that times it's a bit tone deaf to the lived experience of marginalized communities that rely on things like coal to make a living to support livelihoods. And I suppose that that's where the, the kind of procedural justice dimension of just transitions becomes so important. It is absolutely vital that we talk to vulnerable and marginalized groups, including workers, women in coal communities, the youth seeking to enter the economy, and that we do it in a way that builds trust between these different understandings of, of lived experience of life and of, of sustainable development at a broad level. And also, I think, builds, along with trust and empathy, a sense of understanding of what other people's lived experience is like. And so it's both trust and empathy that we need to build through these various levels, I suppose, of dialogue and, and action as, as we move forward. The question then at the heart of this discussion becomes, what will make this transition just? What does a just transition imply in a country like South Africa with the triple challenge of poverty, inequality and unemployment? Mike, let's start with you, but I'd like to ask both of you, what do you think are the top concerns? Sure, I think one of the, the really big concerns is, is that the longer we take to start to put in place just transitions, the more chaotic and unjust the transitions will, will be. They are, in a sense, certainly from a climate change and environmental crisis, uh, shortage of resources, uh, the impact on, on societies, that they are inevitable changes. So I suppose the one thing is, you know, we need to, to plan and to put in place the, the institutional frameworks to achieve these transitions. We need to build capacity in communities to have their concerns and aspirations heard and included in planning and change processes. 
It's no good to say that, that we're all going to come and sit around a round table when people come to that table with, with very different levels of ability to have their, their perspectives heard and to, to engage in the kind of conversation and planning that needs to happen. So I think the planning is, is absolutely key. It's a very focused part of this country. It's a couple of municipalities, one province uh, that is predominantly affected by this transition out of coal. And so I think if we're starting to ask, well, what is it we need to do? We can certainly put a big bit of attention there and learn our way into a just transition, into doing something different with the key role players involved in that area. Thank you, Mike. And your emphasis on planning is just so critical and well taken. And Brenda, I wanted to ask you the same question. What does a just transition in a country like South Africa, what needs to be done for this? I think one thing I'd like to see happen is, first of all, a, a recognition of the fact that there are benefits within a transition and that we are missing out on some of them as we delay on moving forward. There are provinces that have really seen, they've realized gains, massive gains in relation to investments in renewable energy. I, I point to particularly the Northern Cape and the Eastern Cape. And these are provinces that had real problems before the transition kicked off in terms of realizing and attracting foreign investment and creating jobs and attracting tourism even into those provinces. So there are two very clear examples of provinces that have had a massive turnaround already. The provinces that are going to struggle the most with the transition in relation to dislocating from coal and, and moving away from further investment over time. There are many opportunities to draw on global lessons that have been learned in making these transitions and to capitalize on things like differentiating where there are skills transfer possibilities and where there are perhaps intractable problems that need to be addressed that require real and meaningful social protections to be introduced. A lot of the momentum has been lost over the last few years, which we need to regain as quickly as possible on the move to renewables. But on the other side, we've also lost opportunities to plan and to ensure that that time was used well to plan and to ensure that some of the very real consequences are prepared for. So for me, the important thing is to get moving. There's been some consultations around the country, but there's a need to move ahead on especially dealing with the risks and the consequences of really clear economic argument for moving away from new coal investments. Brenda, you spoke about how specific provinces will be impacted more and important and urgent time that has been lost and there's there's a need to make up for it. Um, and you mentioned briefly some of the consultations that have already taken place. Um, could you elaborate a little bit more on what has already been done in South Africa? So there's been one process that was hosted by the National Planning Commission, and it actually involved conversations within affected provinces where communities were invited to come and present their views around what they anticipated. And in that process, they identified several more items of concern than those linked with energy, like land access and employment. Then there have been a few conversations about this, mostly led by the renewables industry. But of course, because of its vested interest, it isn't as successful in, in achieving a common wide debate. So at the moment, my hopes lie with a NEDLAC process, which is the National Development and Labor Council. It's a space where business, labor 
and government and civil society are meant to be able to engage on these issues. And there have been some conversations about employment concerns, a little bit of a conversation around employment losses in the coal sector, but I think we are far away from having sufficient public engagement on this topic. So lack of a common white debate and sort of far from where we need to be. Mike, did you have some things you wanted to share in terms of what has been done in South Africa in different contexts, say national, region and community level already that may have worked? Yeah, so I think picking up on Brenda's point about NEDLAC being a really key uh, place for this dialogue to happen between the, the various social partners, NEDLAC, I think at the end of 2018, hosted a national job summit. And at that job summit, it was agreed that given the impact that a just transition or a transition out of coal is likely to have, uh, there was a necessity to set up a national central body, a presidential climate change coordination commission, to support some of this planning, dialogue, policy development, to support a just transition. That presidential climate change coordination commission, uh, we're hoping to see it emerge uh, relatively shortly. But that, I think, will, will be a key space for this dialogue to happen. I think that the work that the Department of Trade, Industry and Competition, as well as our Department of Environment, Forestry and Fisheries, have been working on in terms of a national employment vulnerability assessment, as well as sector jobs resilience plans. All of this work provides such a good basis to think about and develop the just transition in South Africa. These all sound like very encouraging you know, steps towards dialogue. But Mike, would you say it's easy to collaborate and hold these consultations and have this dialogue? Is it easy to collaborate to achieve just transitions? Are people talking about the same thing when they're having these dialogues? Sure. I think broadly, there is a shared interest and an inclusive green economy. The devil is often in, in the detail. So it's how different parties understand an inclusive green economy. It's where they put the emphasis. So, you know, is the emphasis on retaining or creating jobs in a green economy, uh, essentially keeping the economy going as it, as it is, but with a, with a bit of a green veneer? Or is it a genuinely transformative uh, and inclusive green economy that focuses on decent jobs, uh, social inclusivity, those kinds of, of big issues, which will require some bigger changes. And I think that there are certainly still a lot of work to be done, but there is a lot of work that is going on in civil society, in labor, business units, uh, and in government. And earlier in this conversation, we brought up the issue of access to finance and the role that finance would play in supporting these changes Mike, I wanted to ask you, what is the role of finance? And coming from a climate fund, I'm particularly interested in your opinion on the role of climate funds. Yeah, so I suppose that, that in a way there's almost a carrot and a stick uh, in terms of, of finance. The, the big carrot, I think, is the possibility of concessional finance to de-risk some of the transition processes, uh, to support cross-sectoral dialogue and the kind of planning for concessional financing through programmatic approaches, a big opportunity, I think, for finance to contribute positively into the kinds of change that needs to happen. But there is also a requirement that, that we move away from, from investing in fossil fuels. And I think there, again, the finance institutions have a big role to, to play in making some quite clear decisions upfront around what they will and won't fund in terms of, of developing a, a fossil fuel or various fossil fuel options. 
So yeah, so I suppose finance has two roles, really. The one is to open up possibilities, to de-risk uh, and to support. And the other one is to move out of sectors that, that we no longer feel are viable in terms of economic risk, in terms of environmental impact, and in terms of social inequalities. And Brenda, I wanted to ask you as well, do you agree with this role of finance that Mike has just highlighted? I think it's absolutely critical and it links back to who is able to access the opportunities that are available within the transition. So, for instance, banks within South Africa certainly have not gotten to a point where they are coming up with innovative finance models or access to equity for actors that have not necessarily got the kind of financial background or track record that can mitigate or reduce the risk profile. So I think that these kinds of changes still need to be made in our banking system. And while the development finance sector has made some shifts in terms of the kinds of incentives that it has been created to introduce these improved partnership models to ensure that there is access to finance for new actors, we still have a long way to go in terms of the simpler instruments that can enable, for instance, community-based ownership. So within the model of ownership of renewable power, for instance, you've got equity shareholders, you meant to have community trusts that have shareholding, and then there's always a requirement for black shareholding as well. But most of those actors thus far, in my experience, have had to really either apply for loans, they have to find some way to participate. The system isn't yet shaped up sufficiently to drive those developmental outcomes that one wants to see in relation to finance. And it becomes another obstacle to achieving participation and access. I wanted to ask you a follow-up on this obstacle of access to finance. I mean, you spoke earlier about historical injustices and this access to finance is intertwined with that issue in so many countries. Would you say that this issue of finance, but also policies that are associated with transition, how are they enabling or disabling Black participation in South Africa? So there are many requirements which are meant to be drivers to, to transformation. But transformation can hardly ever happen in a vacuum. There's got to be an enabling environment. Otherwise, it just becomes a blunt instrument to create outcomes like fronting. Fronting, I may explain, is when you just ensure that you have a black shareholder on paper and actually that person has no decision-making power, no ability to influence how the business will take shape. So that is a very un unfortunate consequence of a developmental imperative, which was set up in the case of black participation to ensure that you have you addressing inequality in, in our in this transition, I believe that it hasn't achieved what it could if, for instance, there was um, a direct influence on the banking sector and on ensuring that there are improved instruments for ensuring that, that there isn't this need for unequal power relationships to be established right at the bid phase where you have actors that are basically taking on very different levels of risk because you have a, an investor and with equity shareholding and with a board that is requiring all kinds of risk mitigation measures to be in place. And at the same time, there are meant to be actors who don't have that uh, capacity to offer that risk cover. 
and it just sets things up on an unequal footing right from the start. So I think there are some fundamental shifts that need to happen if you want to achieve transformation through the transition, access to finance and equitable access to finance is going to be a very important problem to solve. And the other side of making this equitable would be the increase in capacity that's needed, the investment in education and skills, the human capital development side of this. What would you say is the action needed in the short, medium and long run in terms of skills and education? I know this is an area you've worked on and you feel quite passionate about. What would you say is needed? Yeah, I think that uh, that both Brenda and I share this big interest in skills development and recognizing that it's absolutely key to opening up uh, alternative economies. We're going to need to develop new skills in the youth particularly so that they can put into an emerging economy and drive an emerging economy, become entrepreneurs and, uh, and support new economies. But there's also a desperate need to upskill and to reskill those people that are in currently resource exploitive, unsustainable sectors of the economy, to upskill them, to give them opportunities into some of the emerging sectors. And all of that requires that we look carefully at what we want to achieve in terms of our plans, and then start a kind of anticipatory skills development process. It takes a long time to put in place curricula, to develop skills, And so we need to anticipate where we want to move and start very early putting in place the kinds of of skills development, education and training that we need in order to achieve what we would like to achieve as as a country in the long term. And I think that too much of our skills planning at the moment depends on existing employers identifying existing uh, skills gaps rather than new industries being able to say, this is what we're going to need in five years' time. And that needs uh, labor skills intelligence work to happen. I know that some of it is happening, but it, it requires a much bigger focus on, a, as I've said, an anticipatory skills development ecosystem in the country. And it leads nicely into something I've been really wanting to ask you, which is just given the discussion we had, if I asked you, what is the level of change that's needed on a spectrum of reform and transformation. So you have reform on one side, which would mean you know, change within existing systems that tend to be market-driven or that seek to modify existing rules and standards to greening the economy. And on the other hand, you have transformation, which might imply an overhaul of the existing political or economic systems. Where would you say the change needed in South Africa for just transitions to be a reality falls on the spectrum of reform on one side and transformation on the other? I definitely would vote for transformation. I think having worked in this sector at the coalface of regulatory governance and policy um, side of the energy spectrum for 13 years now, I have little hope in a reform agenda. I think that we must be much more ambitious and we have to definitely allow the inclusion of more young actors in the space, definitely more women. The entire sector is really slow at transformation and we have lost so many opportunities. I just cannot hold up much hope for reform to be the answer at this stage. So transformation with a focus on youth and women. Yes. (laughs) Thank you, Brenda. And what about you, Mike? Where do you think South Africa falls? What does it need? Yeah, I'm going to say both. It, it falls in both ends of the spectrum. And I, I think that we, 
we desperately need the kind of transformation that, that Brent is talking about. We need to radically transform the way that we think about natural resources, the way that we think about people inside of economies. So I'll give an example of a transition that also has a transformatory intent. I think that one of the, the things that we've struggled to do as we've, we've worked towards, for example, introducing a renewable energy is that many people kind of thought, well, introducing renewable energy was part of the, the low-carbon transition. And it may well have been, but it, in many instances, didn't create decent jobs or it doesn't necessarily create decent jobs. We need to do that consciously. It needs to provide equitable access to energy, and that, again, requires that we think carefully about that. We need to address issues of exclusion of people based on race, gender, age, class, uh, etc. And so what we really need to do is, is to position these smaller changes within a much bigger transformation intent. And I think that, that that is the kind of thing that needs to be considered as we do it. Just very interesting to hear about the experience of South Africa, especially when we talk about just transitions and look at the literature from case studies, we mostly hear about experiences from the global north, Europe, Canada, UK, so examples coming from developing countries that face more similar challenges to each other can really go a long way in contributing to the existing knowledge base. Hence, my last question to you is, what would you say are the more general lessons from the South Africa experience that could be applied in the global South? We at the Climate Investment Funds are currently working to developing country case studies, including India and, and countries in Africa. So what are the lessons that we should take forward? Speaking from my own background in the development of the renewables industry, an important first step was being able to see a steady growth in localization. Because when you achieve that, you're creating employment, you're creating often a whole industry that takes shape around, for instance, one component manufacturing facility. You have suppliers around bolts and paint and all kinds of things that relate to um, that major investment that is made. And when you can see that happening over time and, and really growing. So localization as a driver of local benefits is an important aspect that we've certainly seen successes and we've allowed those successes to be lost in time. But it's something that certainly is an important early step. I think one of the points I want to build on from what Mike was saying just now is that we always have to think in terms of how we're achieving scale. So within that awareness of the fact that there are these successes that can be achieved, taking things to scale requires a combination of thinking around the specific industry and around how you enable and grow capacity around that. So I, I think that within the global south, we have to crack achieving scale. And in the transition, we have many opportunities to test some of those possibilities. So Brenda, localization as a driver of benefit and focus on scale with capacity. Those two seem to be the drivers that, that may be applicable to, in other contexts. And Mike, of course, we're working with you on these case studies that I just mentioned. So having done so much research now on South Africa and having authored this case study, what are some of the lessons that you'll be taking forward in your work? So yeah, lessons that, that I would take forward out of, out of the case study and out of the examination of South Africa in particular. I think that the, that the climate investment funds and the partner uh, multilateral development banks that it, that it works with supported very early on some climate modeling, the long-term mitigation scenarios uh, in South Africa. 
And I think that that kind of socioeconomic and environmental modeling really helps us to do some of the planning that we've been talking about. So it creates an evidence base for the planning that I think helps to overcome some of the vested interests that we may see uh, seeking to delay a move out of coal, for example. I think also that certainly the kinds of convening that the National Planning Commission have done of multiple partners to come together in a position of, of trust uh, that we've also spoken about to have some of the hard discussions about these transitions uh, and ensuring that our Presidential Climate Change Coordination Commission takes forward that kind of, of work that has been uh, developed through careful consultation will, will be important. Uh, I think that the concessional finance into some of the early developments, the Syria wind farm that Eskom developed, concentrated solar power that was developed as part of our renewable energy, independent power producers uh, procurement program, uh, the contribution of finance into de-risking uh, and accelerating the just transition is really key. I think that we've learned a lot about how to respond to some of these big challenges that can be very useful as we think about the recovery programs uh, in terms of COVID-19, the kind of stimulus packages that we need to put in place, and ensuring that those uh, stimulus packages support just transitions in all of the ways that we've been talking about in terms of, of distributional and procedural justice. The reskilling of workers, absolutely key, developing new skills, uh, equipping young people and existing workers to fit into or to make the most really of some of the opportunities that, that are coming up around just transitions. And then this, this point that we've made a, a couple of times around the research and planning that, that we do really needs to articulate the multiple benefits that are possible through these just transitions and through a transition to a low-carbon, resource-efficient and socially inclusive economy. Uh, and if we can articulate those benefits better, then I think that we may be able to move quicker as people see that it's, it's not only about negative impact, that there are positive opportunities uh, that are developing too. So many critical insights that you just, you know, stuck in there right, right in the end. Just very, very grateful for all these wonderful insights that you've shared, your experience, your time. Uh, I hope, especially through this last interaction, our listeners have a lot to take from this conversation. My sincere thanks to you, Brenda, and to you, Mike, for your time and your expertise and just the fantastic work that you're doing in South Africa and for collaborating with us. Thank you so much. Thanks to Mike and Brenda for sharing their insights with us today and to Neha for hosting. The Climate Investment Funds is working on a series of Just Transitions country case studies, of which South Africa is the first. We'll include a link when the South Africa study is completed. And to learn more about our work or about Just Transitions, we have a list of resources on our website. As always, you can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts at csis.org. And follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. Thanks for listening.